what's been done in us and for us. Let us walk more deeply with you this morning. Amen. Uh, So, for this series, we've been memorizing two short passages. Uh, I want to give somebody the opportunity to come up here and recite those from memory. I I don't believe anybody can do it. Can anybody do it? Anybody brave enough to come up here to the microphone? I will give you a prize. I know this. Nobody knew I was going to do this. Anybody? Romans 12, 1 and 2. Okay, I'm going to make you recite them right now. Romans 12, 1 and 2. Here we go. Therefore, right? Huh? Who's going to do it? All right, come on up. All right. You got well. He's he's got to he's got to face that way. He can't see it. I can't even see in the mirrors. You can't look up there. All right. Good. All right. Go ahead and put it up. Therefore, I urge you, brothers. Hello. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy. Sisters. Now I have to start over now. <laughs> Therefore, in view of God's mercy, I ought to offer your bodies as living, sac- as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to, this is where I get tricked up, approve, test, and what God's will is, his, his perfect will. All right. <laughs> All right. That, that was pretty good. You can exchange that for any book in the back you want. All right. Anybody want to try Ephesians 2, 8 through 10? Come on now. No? Nobody? Okay, let's recite it together. Ready? One, two, three. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Amen. Um, So next week, maybe you can work at it this week. Next week, you can win a prize. I'll, I'll bring something fun next week, all right? Um, but over, over the coming weeks, we want to be uh, memorizing this scripture. And so we have those little cards over there that are uh, printed. Both those passages are printed on either side. We gave them out last week, but those are some extras over there if you want to grab that. Keep it in your pocket or in your wallet or put it on your car dashboard or something like that. And it really does help. And uh, we just kind of want to soak this stuff in. We want to get the word into our minds and our hearts so that we, it is the, it's like right there to be thinking about it. Um, now, as far as Ephesians chapter 2 go, many evangelicals only memorize verses 8 and 9 when they, they memorize Ephesians chapter 2. They don't memorize verse 10. They stop before they get there. And maybe the reason for that is that the idea or the discussion for an evangelical, um, and I, I use that term very broadly, you know, like that's probably the best term to use right now, uh, but the, the reason is that, you know, anytime we talk, talk about works or good works as evangelicals, we, we get this sense of legalism. We get this sense of like, you know, in, that, in our mind, which, you know, we've tried, to, we've tried to avoid legalism so strongly in the, in the Christian church, in the non-denominational, you know, 
nebulous evangelical world, whatever you want to call us, right? Um, we are drawn to words of grace, but words of works, we kind of get a little itchy about. And, you know, it's and not to be critical of the Catholic Church, but we broke away from the Catholic Church as protestants, right? We protested some things, right? On that issue of grace versus works concerning our salvation, that's the big, that was the big issue. And so our sensitivity in discussing works has been set rather high. It's at a high level. Uh, But like many things, uh, what we end up doing is we end up swinging to extremes, right? And we uh, throw the baby out with the bathwater. Poor little baby. Should have kept the baby and thrown that bathwater out. But whatever the case, let me say this, is that this is God's word to us. This is God's word to us. And I truly, truly, truly believe that. It is God's word to us. So verse 10 isn't an afterthought, right? And verse 10 is not a call to legalism. But it's, it's that to which all the other verses lead, right? It works up to that. So if we stop at verse 9, we have a truncated view of our own spiritual formation. We are called to good works, which largely have to do, good works normally have to do with other people, right? You do good works with usually other people, which is the next building block in our definition of spiritual formation, that spiritual formation, my spiritual formation, is for the sake of other people, right? All of our spiritual formation is for the sake of others. God is building something in me for the sake of you, right? So we are called uh, to good works, which largely have to do uh, with other people. And uh, our definition of spiritual formation at this point has been that spiritual formation is the process of being made into the likeness or the image of Christ, right? Being formed by the Spirit of God via His Word into the image of Jesus. But to what end, right? That's the question today. To what end? Just to become some sort of a showpiece that God sits on a shelf someplace. That would be a pretty boring life. So it's obviously not that, right? In growing in his image, we grow into Jesus' concerns for life. Leading uh, to doing the things that he would have us to do, right? To have us to be about. We know... um, that our salvation is secure. We know that from Ephesians chapter 2. It's very clear in there. Scripture in other places tells us that, that very clearly. We don't earn our place. We don't earn our value or our worth with Jesus by what we do. Our position is ascribed to us by grace through faith. It's given to us. We're woken up from spiritual slumber or spiritual death, right? And we're breathed new life into us, you know? Think about the bones with the sinews and the the muscles coming on them, and what, what passage is that? Ezekiel, is that right? What is that? The dry bones passage that we talked about a while ago. I love that passage. Um, so, so it's been ascribed to us. However, it leads to good works. Our spiritual formation leads to good works, acts of love. If our radar is set high anywhere, if, it, if, we're, we're, if we're kind of sensitive to anything, it should be that we cannot earn our place with Jesus. We don't earn that place, right? But that doesn't mean that effort towards the spiritual life, towards uh, you know, uh, Jesus in good works with other people and loving others well is, is not a call to the spiritual life. That is most definitely verse 10, chapter 2 of Ephesians you know, is most definitely part of it. 
And a great part of, of, of doing good works is what? It's truth-telling. It's, it's being people of truth. It's being people that tell the story of Jesus, right? It's being a witness of Christ, which we as Christians, and we don't say this arrogantly, believe that is the truth. Right? But who is Jesus? Ah, just some guy that walked around for a while, right? Got nailed to a tree. Who is Jesus? (laughs) Right? What's so important that we become his witnesses in this world? It's like a miniature bottle, little bitty baby bottle. I don't think I like this. I like the big bottle. Anyway. But who is Jesus, right? Jesus came to usher in the kingdom of God, the thing that he spoke of most. He came to usher in the kingdom of God. He claimed to be the central kingly figure of that kingdom, the Messiah of Israel. He said, He said bold, exclusive, and I think they're exclusive in a good way, bold, exclusive statements like, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and nobody comes to the Father except through me. He's exclusive in that claim, right? Exclusive. Exclusive in that claim of divinity and how to know God. And according to Jesus, there are no other paths to God right? Other than through him. You've all heard the old adage of, of a bunch of blind guys or, or blindfolded guys uh, feeling their way around an elephant and one grabs a tail and says it's a rope and another one grabs a leg and says it's a tree and another one gla- grabs a side or touches the side and says it's a wall and another one grabs the trunk and says it's a snake and somebody grabs an ear and says it's a fan and then somebody grabs a tusk and says, oh, it's a spear, right? And it's an old story, sometimes used by, by many people to illustrate the, the religions of the world and how, you know, we're all looking at God from a, some different vantage point and none of us really see the larger picture of who God is from our own van, vantage point. We get these little bitty glimpses, but we really don't fully understand it. Well, let me, let me say, let me, let me just be in the very vernacular, right? Let me say, according to the scriptures and according to Jesus Christ, that is absolute total BS. It is BS, and don't ever believe it. It is wrong thinking. It's not truth. As we look at the, at the biblical narrative, we see exactly what we need, need to see of who God is and how to reach him, and that is through Jesus, God incarnate. He, he, lives, he leaves no other room for other path. In Jesus, we see the whole elephant, the whole elephant, I amen to that. You are not without hope. The whole elephant is right there for you to see and touch and feel and live with. He claimed the kingdom broke into our reality via him. He said the law and the prophets were proclaimed until John, and that is John the Baptist. You remember who just preceded Jesus, right? Since at that time, the good news of the kingdom is via Since that time, sorry, uh, the good news of the kingdom of God is being preached. So up until John, bang, the the kingdom breaks in. Now the kingdom of God is being preached. He's saying, in other words, the kingdom came with me. 
Really interesting, if you think about the interaction, the encounter surrounding Jesus' baptism with John uh, at the Jordan River, right? At that time, John said to the people gathered there, he said, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near, right? And then to the Pharisees who were, you know, these, at least those guys there were like sort of arrogant, whatever. He said, produce fruit in keeping with repentance, right? Because to know Jesus and to enter into the kingdom of God, it requires a repentance of your sin. You got to understand what you're being saved from. And then John made the unmistakable claim as to Jesus' positional lordship in his kingdom when he said to them, I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. In other words, he's referencing Jesus and only God can baptize you with the Holy Spirit. He can set your heart on fire, right? And the next day, John saw Jesus coming towards him and he said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I mean, John is pretty clear, right? And then he says, I have seen and I testify that this is God's chosen one. This is him. This is the king of your kingdom, right? This is the Messiah. This is God's anointed one who is only only he is able to save your soul. That's what he's saying to everybody. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John is painfully clear with his disciples. Painfully clear. There is no doubt in John's mind at this point. He says, you yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Messiah, but am am sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine. And it is now complete because the bridegroom's here, right? We, he must become greater and I must become less, John says about Jesus. In other words, I've done my job. I have done my job. Here's Jesus. Here's your king. Your king, right? And about the good news in this, of this inbreaking kingdom, Jesus said, and this gospel of the kingdom must be preached as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So we don't know exactly when Jesus will return, but we do know what needs to happen before Jesus returns, and that is that his people are telling the truth about him all over the place. In Mark 6 and Luke 10, he sent the disciples out two by two to do just this, to proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God, had broken in via himself. He, he spoke of it. He modeled it. He trained the disciples towards it, right? He provided opportunity for them to practice it, and he eventually went to the cross for it. And in Luke 7, Jesus responds to John the Baptist's uh, disciples when they inquire, John the Baptist sent us to you to ask, are you the one who is to come or should we expect somebody else? Isn't that very natural, right? Like like he's so sure a few days ago. Now he's like, well, maybe it's not. Maybe it's not him, right? John's waffling a little bit on his convictions of who Jesus is. Maybe because Jesus didn't act fully exactly like John thought the Messiah would ask. But anywhere, he, he, to his credit, he sends his boys, his, his homies over there to ask, are you really the guy? Are you really the dude? And, you know, are you really the Messiah? And Jesus replies, 
Go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight. The lame walk. Those who have leprosy are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised. And the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. In other words, it's very clear who I am. It's very clear what's going on. These are all signs of the inbreaking kingdom of God in, the, in, in and through the ministry of Jesus. And Jesus is saying, yes, I am most definitely him. I am most definitely him. <sighs> Jason's wound up this morning, isn't he? A little bit. A little, little bit, right? A little bit wound up with my little bitty bottle of water. <laughs> it's the water. Something's in the water. But we don't just have these claims, right? We don't just have these claims or these instances of great joy of the kingdom breaking in, right? We also have, at the end of the story, you all know how it ends, right? The crucifixion and the resurrection. If anyone was in doubt before as to who Jesus was, this clinches it. This confirms it, right? He predicts his own death and then his own resurrection, and then it happens. And by the way, let me just say very clearly, the integrity of the scriptures and the the truth of this whole story are beyond all question, in my opinion, and in the opinion of all scholars out there, I think, all decent scholars. Thousands upon thousands of ancient documents confirm this story. We have more textual evidence of its integrity than any other ancient document out there, right? Many from eyewitnesses very close to the time of the events. The story wouldn't have been written the way it was if it were fabricated at all. No one would, and I'm sorry, ladies, but nobody would have used women as the very first eyewitnesses. It just would not have worked. It would have become suspect right away. But that fact alone, actually lends to his credence. Why would you use something that wouldn't make sense to anybody, right? Eyewitnesses of Jesus' death and resurrection went on to die for this message. They they wouldn't die for a, 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 a fabrication or even if just a fleeting vision. They touched Jesus after he rose. Thomas stuck his finger in his side. They had meals with him. Paul, a very early and powerful enemy of the church, gave up everything when he met the risen Christ on the road. Jesus, Jesus' own half-brother, James, was a skeptic until after the resurrection when he saw his own half-brother rise from the dead. You've got to see your own brother rise from the dead before you're going to claim your brother as God. Nobody wants to worship their own brother, Right? My brothers, there's no way. (laughs) Hundreds of people witnessed Jesus after his exit from the grave. There is absolutely no reason to doubt the veracity and the integrity of the story of the Gospels. It has been under scrutiny for more than two, two millennia and has done nothing but grow in its confirmation of its integrity. Nothing. Nothing. Go read. You'll find out. We are called to be truth tellers, witnesses of this Jesus, this, this God incarnate that broke into our reality and walked among us with freedom and healing, this story and nothing else. Not to get sidetracked by anything else. 
And Luke 7 tells us it's not just with words that we tell this story, but it's filled with power encounters where Christ broke through in healing and, and, and the destruction of all the spiritual evils that hold sway over people. It's a powerful message. We're called to emulate Jesus in good works which exhibit this inbreaking kingdom power among people. And that's why as a church, we have as one of our eight systems governing our church, the kingdom opportunity system, where we get to get out with people and rub elbows and all that kind of stuff and pray up for opportunity to tell them about Jesus and exhibit the kingdom of God among them. But none of that will happen. Let me just be really clear. None of that will happen if we just rake leaves or we just carve pumpkins or we just talk about the weather. None of that will happen if, if, you're, if you're indifferent to your own spiritual formation and you're not overflowing with the love of Christ, Romans 15, 13, to these people all around you. If you don't care. That's why the vineyard, I, I think, brilliantly calls us to ask people the question, can I pray for you right now? And then to do it. Since there's no other way the kingdom breaks in so powerfully as to pray freedom over to people or or revealing God in their own experience, you know, just speaking words that we hear from the Holy Spirit to this person. It is very, very powerful. And as transformation occurs in us, the heart of Christ drives us to make disciples of all peoples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that Jesus commanded us as seen in the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 18 through 20. His last command, our first concern, truth-telling. Truth-telling with our lives and with our words, right? As we get closer to Jesus, our heart for others to know and find freedom in him and to glorify him grows within us. It does. And that is a response of gratitude and joy as to what's already been done for me and in me through which we model this kingdom life to others in both word and in deed. How we speak to them and what we do with them or for them. So we practice the presence of God leading to spiritual formation simultaneously being called into his mission. And mission is both in word and deed. Word and deed. Being in Christ, doing the things of Christ. Right? And spiritual life moves forward in the invitation to journey deeper and go, while you go out to others, right? Because it's not about us. It is not about us. It's about God's glory Through God's mission, it's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus, the king of the kingdom. Our language for this at 6-8 has been to follow Jesus, to live as Jesus did, and to manifest Jesus in the Eastern Main Line and beyond, out to Syria, places like that, Morocco, places like that. Someone shared this past Tuesday in the best community group that there is on Tuesday nights (laughs) at my house which you're welcome to come to. No, but somebody at our community group shared this past Tuesday night that it's easy to find people claiming to be a Christian. It's easy, very easy, right? But it's harder to find those who govern everything in their life towards Jesus. Their finances, their relationships, their words, their thoughts, their choices, everything. 
But that's what Jesus calls us to. C.S. Lewis once said, Christ says, give me all. (laughs) Right? I don't want so much of your time or so much of your money or so much of your work. I want you. You have not come to torment. I, I have not come to torment your natural self, but to kill it. No half measures are any good. Hand over the whole natural self, all the desires which you think innocent, as well as the one you, you think wicked, the whole outfit. I will give you a new self instead. In fact, I will give you myself, my own will shall become yours. In agreement, in agreement with Lewis, uh, M. Robert Mulholland says we can't, cut corners in our spiritual formation. In speaking of moving towards spiritual wholeness, he says, if we short-circuit our definition, as many definitions do at this point, in other words, we stop with just our relationship with Jesus, me and Jesus, baby. Forget everybody else out here, right? If we stop there, we stop at verse 9 of chapter 2 Ephesians and not go to verse 10, right? We don't have Christian spiritual formation. We don't have holistic spiritual formation. What we have is some kind of pathological formation that is privatized and individualized, a spiritualized form of self-actualization. I'll be a jerk. Think of Joel Osteen and his message. That's what you get. Think of Oprah Winfrey and her message. That's what you get. Just empty spirituality. It doesn't really have teeth to it at all. Although, and he continues, although such forms of spirituality may be very appealing to look at on the outside, quite comfortable in their easy conformity to the values and dynamics of our culture, they are like a whitewashed tomb that has deadness on the inside if they are not life-giving, healing, and redemptive for others. Now, this dying of self that Lewis and I, I think even Mulholland talks about is not horrific. It is absolutely wonderful. It's absolutely wonderful. But wherever something in our lives isn't transformed by the image of Christ, it means that we are incapable of being all that God calls us to himself or to others. At best, our in, uh, in our indifference, others are hindered in knowing the fullness of Christ in their lives because of our lack of word and deed towards them. We don't even think about telling them. We don't even think about loving them in Christ. At worst, we become outrightly destructive towards them because we've got to control them, make them do what we want them to do. Those places where the Lord is, uh, well, I am still Lord of my own life, you know, and Christ isn't, right? Places where my agenda, my purpose, my will, and, and my desires reign instead of his, to that extent, our relationship with others will be controlled by these things instead of what Christ wants for the, these people in front of us. Relationships with others are often seen as secondary and tangential to our relationship with God in pop Christianity. But biblical Christianity, true Jesus Christianity, you might call it, I don't know, calls us to make a primary focus at the same time our relationship with God as we relate to other people, practicing his presence, being formed and on mission all the time. So a good litmus test to ask yourself is, how well do I love others in Christ through word and deed? 
Are the things that I involve myself with uh, moving towards the end glorification of Jesus among people? Are they moving towards the glorification of me? Since spiritual formation leads us to become what we were originally created to be in relationship to God and other people, in community with others, right? Jesus summed up the whole law and the command. You know this one. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. You know, and the second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no greater commandment than these. That, those are the greatest commandments, he said. And the, epistle, the, the epistles in the New Testament regularly lift this command up as the essence of Christian life. We see it everywhere in, 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 one of the, in all of these passages that are lift, listed up on that screen. Romans, 1 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, all these passages. And that's just a few of them. Jesus even says, right, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Love, 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 right? There's a consistency of message throughout the scriptures concerning this issue of loving others well, right? Of truth telling and modeling the life of Jesus in love towards other people, right? What, what better way to love people to, than to offer them the absolute freedom and eternal life and encourage them in Christ, encourage them towards Jesus. But remember, as we said last week, this is very important. Love without truth lies, Love without truth lies, and truth without love kills. Warren Wiersbe said it this way. It's a little different. Makes it help, helps to hear a different way. Truth without love is brutality. You just use the truth to beat people up, right? Truth without love is brutality, and love without truth is hypocrisy. Holds no water, right? Timothy Keller says it this way. He says, truth without love is imperious self-righteousness. I'm still in control. Love without truth is cowardly self-indulgence. Again, I'm still in control. Both are selfish. He's right. He's right. And in this culture, nobody wants to hear truth. Well, that's our job. That's our job. As followers of Jesus, we stick to the message proclaiming Jesus. Loving others into the relationship with him without compromise to holiness and purity, but with all sensitivity as we do so, because it's not about us. It's about God's glory through God's mission. That's what it's about. Last week, we focused a little bit on the image of Christ, which is being formed in us. Jesus was fully God, fully man, God incarnate, walking around among us. He was tempted in every way that, that, that we have been, right? God who loved us enough to be born into a stable and grow and be susceptible to all the temptations and all the pains of, pains of life, who grew, who grew up as a boy and became a man who gave himself totally and absolutely, completely to and unconditionally for others, right? Jesus gave everything. And he calls us to the same life. He says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. That's what he did for us. And then he commands us to do the same. He says, my command is this. Love each other as I have loved you. Greater love is no one than this. To lay down his life for, uh, for one's friends. 
You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything that I learned from the Father, I have made known to you. Now, that's dangerous. Knowledge comes with responsibility. Everything I have learned from my Father, I have made made known to you. You did not choose me. I chose you, Ephesians chapter 2, right? And I appointed you so that you may go and bear fruit, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. Fruit that will last, and so that whatever you ask in my Father's name, name, the, the Father will give you, this is my command, love each other. You know, birds have feet, little feet and talons, right? They can walk around, but, you know, they can grab hold of branches and all that stuff, but flying is a bird's thing, right? It's, it's the characteristic thing of a bird. It's what a bird can do that nobody else can do. Well, maybe a 747, but birds can do this by themselves. Eugene Peterson tells the story of two tree swallows who are feeding their offspring on a branch that is like four feet over the, like coming out four feet over the surface of a lake, and so they're feeding them for a while, and then they finally get tired of feeding them. So they land on the branch behind their little babies, and they start to shove them off one by one. In, you know. and, the, and the thing is, these, these little birds had never flown before. They didn't, they'd never soared through the air. But mom and dad knew that they could. And so they shoved them off the end. And every one of them dropped three feet and then caught the air and started to soar a foot, a foot over the water. Jesus knows that you can fly. He knows you can love like this. He knows that you can be brave. He chose you. He consecrated you. He set you apart for this kind of a life. Jesus gave himself, he gave totally of himself, and he chose us for this reason, to emulate him, right? Giving is what we actually do best. You're at your best when you're giving it away. Giving, uh, giving away to our neighbors, to our friends, to our family, to our community. So remember, spiritual formation in Christ is for the sake of others. You know the master's business. <laughs> it's been made known to you. You are without excuse, sorry to say. At least this morning you are, because I just told you, Right? You've been chosen to go bear fruit. And whatever you do in this vein of desire, if this is what you truly desire, if it, it'll be given to you in some way, shape, or form. It'll be given to you since it's in line with the heart of Christ. So use your cards over the coming weeks and memorize these passages. Let them soak into your soul. Let them become part of your lingo. If you didn't get a card on the way in, grab one on the way out. And you remember, as Jen and Lindley have shared in the past weeks, there are practices which enable us to go deeper in our spiritual formation, uh, our efforts to be made towards there. And uh, Christine is going to come share a little bit about uh, a new one today, and then we're going to finish with worship. (laughs) 
Hello. Oops. Hello. Hello. <laughs> Hello. There we go. Me again. So Jason talked a lot um, about knowing, and we all know the Word of God. But more importantly, the, the spiritual formation practice that I'm going to talk about helps us to experience it. And that's Lectio Divina. And I think we actually have one more um, book over there that, uh, that you can grab if you don't already have one. But Lectio Divina has um, several steps. But it really takes us from knowing the word into experiencing the word. Like, we all know what snow is. But when you lay in the snow and and do snow angels or you make a a snowball or feel those, those snowflakes drop on our faces or our hands, that's a sensate, experiential knowledge. And that's what Lectio Divina can give us with the word of God. And there are, there are four steps. It's reading, meditating, contemplating. I forgot the last one. <laughs> Read. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Um, I, will, I, I will find that in one second. But, <laughs> but you start out with putting yourself in... Um, in God's presence, asking him to be with you. And then taking, taking some time to do that and really opening up your mind um, and your heart to receive the word. And then with our book, it will give you uh, scripture passages as to um, what you should read that day. What you do is read it once, then read it out loud um, slowly, really listening for the, maybe the word or the, just the phrase that God is, is wanting you to hear what's going on in your life right now. Maybe it'll attach to something there. And then reading it even again a third time, really slowly, and then meditating on those, um, on those words that God is giving to you. Once you have those in, in, in the book or the journal, if you don't have that book, you, you can do this on your own, just you know, kind of finding a passage and doing it on your own. But then writing those things down, writing those phrases or those words down that God is giving to you, and then developing a prayer specific to yourself about those, writing that prayer down and saying it throughout the day. Um, probably one of, one of my... my uh, colleague spiritual formation uh, mentors uh, will talk about breath prayer, and sometimes that can come out of that as well. Um, and I know Lindley last week talked about this spiritual discipline handbook, and if, if, if any of these speak to you, this book is awesome because it can really give you many different practices and a lot of information about how to do them, um, what benefit it can have for you. So once you write that prayer, then you're going to sit in silence again with the Lord and with his word and, and just reflect. Just reflect in silence, contemplate on, 
on everything that you have just experienced in his word. Uh, And it's an awesome way, at least for me, it's an awesome way to start my day and, and really start it being in the Lord and experiencing his word for us individually. Thank you.